Welcome to Founders Unfiltered by a junior VC. We are your hosts, Mazin and Aviral. We actually wrote about Razorpay, right? I think we wrote about them mid last year. It's an incredible story. I mean, a lot of people don't really understand how difficult it was to build a payment gateway infrastructure in India when there was literally no digital access. I think over the last five years, they've innovated so much, come up with new products. It's an amazing journey, total hustle. The founder tried to speak to 100 banks before they started. In this episode, we speak to Harshil, the co-founder and CEO of Razorpay, one of India's largest payment gateways. And we also touch on his new product, Razorpay X, which is a neobank for businesses. And this time around, it's very different when he launches this product. He kind of touches on that in the episode. What do you think about the neobanking industry in India? So neobanks, um, I think they've done really well in Europe specifically. I think conceptually, they are trying to create a much better user experience for users because banks tend to be very difficult to work with for the general user as you and I and most of our listeners would agree. And they're trying to, you know, build a layer which is more interactive, easier, like as easy as a Swiggy or a Zomato. I think fundamentally as a principle, it's quite good. It just remains to be seen whether the execution and the trust that these new banks can build uh, will supersede what people already have with Indian banks, which honestly for some is very, very high trust, like SP and others. Indian customers trust them a lot. Do you think that they're well positioned to succeed? Yeah, I think um, out, out of the so many new banks that are coming in, uh, Razorpay X is, is probably one of the companies in pole position, primarily because, you know, if you look at our piece and uh, what we discussed, they are sitting on the flow of money. And because of that, they've been able to upsell and cross-sell products, which was a great insight that Harshil shared with us as well. I think that because they've already built this layer of trust that, hey, we can manage our money well, uh, they'll be able to extend this and expand this to Razorpayx. And I think pretty promising, optimistic about uh, how they are going to do in this new category. Please enjoy our conversation with Harshil about his incredible entrepreneurial journey. Maybe we could rewind a bit and if you could talk us through a little bit about your journey as to why you actually started this, what you were doing before Razorpay, how did that inspire you? Would love to understand that and the motivation to start uh, Razorpay, which has you know now become a household name almost. Yeah, would love to go into that. So me and Shushank started the company and we are both graduates from at Rudiki. Shushank was a senior to me in college and we both used to work on side projects all the time. So once we graduated, I joined Schlumberg in Middle East. Uh, Shishang joined Microsoft in Seattle. And we had a lot of time doing our job. So we, we used to spend the time doing sad projects. And for one of those projects, we wanted to accept payments in India. And that's when we realized like, how hard was it for a startup or a small SME to accept digital payments in the country. Access to financial services was not very democratic in nature. And the larger guys had generally had better access to things than, than a younger startup uh, such as ours. And we felt that like internet and digital payments should be driving that change because it's one of the major reasons internet has grown so ubiquitous in our lives is because it democratizes availability of services and information to the masses. So anyone from a small guy to a large guy has access to similar level of infrastructure. Unfortunately, that was not true for payments in India. And that's where the thought of building something like Razorpay came into our minds that uh, we could build something so a solution which 
targets primarily startups. And if we build a payment and a financial platform for startups, then, and as these startups grow bigger, we could grow big with them. So that was the thesis with which we started. Of course, it was not an easy journey because you had to work with banks, partners. It's not like building a software solution where you can just build an app and launch. You had to get a lot of these partnerships in place. But I think that was the initial belief that drove us to build something like this. Understood. And I think early on, you had started it as a online crowdfunding platform. You realized that, yep. uh, you know, the bigger and more, you know, larger problem is online payment solutions. I think it was super challenging. It seems very easy now because it's so normal for us. But, you know, rewinding six years back, you had banks, you had businesses, you would have had to actually go and work with banks, a new startup coming and saying, hey, we want to be a payment gateway. How was that experience and how did you actually actually crack it? I think one of your first you know, believers was an HDFC manager that you've spoken about who helped you get off the ground, but would love to understand that as well because it's super inspiring. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So yeah, uh, the side project that we were doing was building a social crowdfunding platform for India. We were trying to build something like a GoFundMe equivalent. And that's when we faced this challenge of accepting payments. And then we, when we went, Googled around, we found that almost every startup faced this issue with accepting digital payments. Uh, and that's where we felt that this is probably a bigger opportunity than what we were doing uh, before. I think, but as I said earlier, right, it's getting into payments of fintech in India is not as simple as building an app or a website and you just launch it and see how your customers get traction. You have to get partnerships with banks. You have to break into that ecosystem. And it's extremely hard for Somebody from outside the financial domain, somebody like me and Shishan, we were both, we both had zero financial background. Uh, I remember on one fine day in Jaipur, I decided to walk into a bank branch next to my house to ask him how could I start a payment gateway. And the manager just laughed at me like he didn't understand what I was saying. And he was like, I can sell you a payment gateway, but I don't know how you can start one. And similarly, through him, I got connected with a couple of other folks. I approached the banks and it's extremely hard to even find the right guy who would allow us to do something like this. And that's when we realized that most of the financial and fintech companies in India, at least at that point of time, was started by ex-bankers or ex-finance guys because they had the network and the connections required to launch something in this space. So for us, it was a harder journey. I, I got connected with multiple bankers. I realized that, okay, Jaipur is probably not the right place. We have to approach their regional or zonal headquarters. So I got connected to their teams in Delhi and Mumbai. And set up meetings with the folks. I think I would have met at least like, I don't know, about close to 80 to 100 bankers. A lot of those rejected us or directed me to someone else because they didn't handle this. Finally, I think I remember I had a meeting in Mumbai with, with one senior banker from SDFC. Surprisingly, while, while he was senior, he was a younger guy, 35 in age, and who understood what I was talking about. He understood what startups are. This is like six years back when startups were not as mainstream as they are today. But he was somebody who understood what startups are and what I was trying to do. He had heard of the story of companies like Stripe, Square, and PayPal in US. And he understood what we were trying to build. So this, he was the first one who gave us a break uh, and gave us an in-principle approval. It was still not half done because we still had to go through compliances and everything. But at least we, we had an in-principle approval. So we were in business. And I remember like the next day I went to my office and resigned from my job uh, because that was the approval that we were waiting for. We had almost built have the product without having access to the banking infrastructure. Uh, but once we got the initial approval, we knew that we will be able to launch. So yeah, I think it was a pretty tough time to build a startup. And banks were not as eager to partner with startups as they are today. But I, I think the, a lot of those things have changed as companies like us have scaled up. Banks have ensured that like startups are, startups don't just want to tie up with banks. They also bring a lot of businesses business to banks. 
And I think that's why the equation has changed a lot in the last couple of years. No, absolutely. That's insane. I mean, super inspiring. And you're probably not referencing the number of banks that said no to you. I think it was in the hundreds from what I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I'm at okay. almost 80 to 100 banks. Wow. Talking. And now you have like 45 merch. I'll, I'll be spending some more time on your story because it's, it is really good. At, you know, around end of 2014, I think Flipkart tried to start its own payment gateway, PZP, but that like failed. At the same time, you guys got into Y Combinator, the second Indian startup to make it there. Uh, how was that journey? And then, you know, you started moving to the valley, got some great exposure there and then came back to India. How did that experience help and, you know, uh, set the ground for the next four or five years? Yeah, I think Y Combinator played a very, did a very defining role in our journey. Before getting into Y Combinator, our goal was, hey, we'll build something to solve for payments for startups. We had some projections and we thought that, Okay, that is it. And I think we'll be able to get profits and we'll scale up from there. Right. Uh, once we went to Y Combinator, I think our worldview changed a lot. We were the second Indian company to get into YC. But the first thing that YC helped us was, of course, we had meetings with their partners and Chris Paul Graham. And the most important thing that they did for us was expand our vision to say that, hey, why do, why do you want to limit yourselves to just a payment gateway for a startup? Like you could go broader, you could do a lot more things because India is fairly early in its financial journey. And while it's not as deep of a market as US is, the opportunity in India to go deeper is pretty broad. And they help us define our vision to say that, okay, we start with payments or we'll do whatever it takes to help businesses digitize their financial infrastructure. The other advantage of getting into YC was, of course, it gave us a lot of exposure because we were the second company. So we got connected to a lot of great investors and great partners who could work with us. The third advantage of YC was, of course, the alumni base that YC has. I remember there was a time when we wanted to get connected to Shopify to get our payment gateway integrated with Shopify. And it was very hard for us to get that through. So I dropped a mail to the YC alumni base and somebody connected us to the CPO of Shopify in Canada. And within a week, we were live on Shopify as a payment integration. So I think YC is not just about an investment. I think the money is pretty small and it's, it's, the money is not even the, even the talking point when it comes to YC. But YC gives you exposure is to... First of all, the, the partners who have exposure to so many large companies who have been built across the world and they can share their learnings. The most important thing is that for first-time founders, that what, what YC or NX later for that matter does is help avoid a lot of pitfalls that first-time founders go through when doing fundraising, when acquiring clients, when building a team, when hiring first employees. I think that's the best part coupled with a very strong alumni base that YC brings in through which you can get connected to almost everyone in almost all large companies. Amazing. And... You know, at that time, India was in 2G. E-commerce transactions would have like 30 to 40% payment failure rates. Was some of, you know, setting that high bar, was it inspired by your interactions there? Because, you know, what you were trying to do was kind of unprecedented, even though the online payments volume was not that high like it is today. But there were huge problems. There was so much friction, very limited data speeds and high failure rates on transactions. So you know, how did you approach this particular problem, which was, I think, the first time someone was trying to do this in India? Yeah, I think that's one thing YC teaches. So first of all, this problem, YC didn't help us discover that because YC doesn't have a lot of Indian context. So they don't know what happens in India and they can't help you with figuring out the problem treatment if you are an Indian business. They can probably help you if you are building it for US or international market. But what YC kind of talks about as a mantra is that build something people want, which basically means talk to your customers. So even before we got our banking partnership, the one I talked about with SDFC closed in, uh, we had already started figuring out who would be our target customer. And we started, so we were working out of this co-working space in Jaipur. 
we started speaking to these early stage startups in who are in, in that co-working space. I reached out to startups in Facebook groups like Bangalore startups, Pune startups. I just posted, hey, we're building something uh, for payment acceptance for startups. And if you're facing any problems with it, please reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. A lot of startups reached out to me. So me and Shishan would go on calls with these guys, understand what problems they face. Failure rates was one. The second was the onboarding time was pretty long. It used to take about two months for a company to go live with the payment gateway. The integration process was very substandard. Generally, the payment companies would share large uh, PDF files through which they had to figure out how to integrate a payment gateway themselves. Then we figured out that the kind of custom support that these guys would get, generally small guys would get, was almost non-existent. So many problems. I think the best way to discover then the problems uh, for a product that you're building, the best way to identify those problems is to talk to customers who are going to use that product. And that's what we did. So while parallelly I was approaching bankers and reaching out to these 100 plus bankers, apparently we were speaking to these customers day in, day out, just trying to understand what problems they face when they try to work with payment companies. And I think that refined our vision a lot and that refined our problem statement much better. And we knew exactly what we had to build once we get the bank partnership in place. And that's why once we got the bank partnership lined up, the goal I didn't take much longer from that because the product side, we were very certain what we needed to solve for, who are we solving it for? And like, and once we solve it, who do we need to approach for that? So once we went live, like we did our first live transition in March 2015, we reached out to again, this entire base. And within like a week, we had like 400, 500 active paying customers, uh, which would take significantly longer for a new startup. But because we are already talking to these guys, and we were just telling them, hey, we are trying to get this approval, but once we get in, we'll definitely serve you better than what you use today. This gave us a really good, big boost on the day we launched because these guys were really waiting for us to go live. And I think that's one of the best things that early stage startup like us could have, that you already have a set of paying customers who are ready to take you on as soon as your product goes live. And that worked really well for us. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that, uh, you know, you ended up raising a Series A around the end of 2015. Uh, 2016 would be a defining year for the startup ecosystem. For many companies, it would be like a funding winter, but for fintech companies specifically like yourself, it was uh, the year of demonetization, November 8, 2016. I think, you know, because yep. you're talking about product, you guys ended up launching a SaaS recurring payment solution in like 12 days after demonetization happened and you really capitalized on it. How was that, you know, that experience, that environment where you had to make such a big shift so quickly and then capitalize because your merchants, I think 10x in that December from 2000 to 25,000. Um, how did you rally the yep. team? What what was it that you did to, you know, ship so fast? Yeah, demonetization was definitely like one of the most <laughs> exciting times in our journey. I think the next most exciting time has been COVID. Of course, nobody had predicted it, but when demonetization was announced, I remember I was on a flight from Mumbai to Bangalore. And just when the flight was taking off, I learned that, okay, something like this has been announced. And like the entire journey is for thinking, what are the implications of it? So next day morning, like we had the entire company in the office waiting to understand what are we going to do about this? We were a very small team back then. I think we were less than 100 employees, but we got into a room. We figured out, okay, these are the opportunities that are coming our way because of this. These are the things that we could do. And one of the first things we highlighted was that, okay, what can we do for the small guys? A large businesses will figure out what they want to do. And they'll figure out their solutions, banks will assist them, uh, large companies will assist them. But what can we do for the small merchant in this time? So one of the first problems we figured out is, okay, a lot of small merchants would want to accept payments digitally, but they don't know how to. Uh, they don't have a POS machine. POS machines will anyways go out of stock very quickly because a lot of businesses will try to install POS machines in a day. And like then these small guys will left with no option because they can't accept cash and they would not have a way to accept payments. So what could we do for them? So within three 
days we launched this app called epos which allowed anyone any business with a smartphone to just download an app and sign up with it and accept payment from the customer they didn't need any physical hardware they didn't need to meet anyone they didn't need to go anywhere they could just download an app sign up and it and start accepting payments this was built within 3 days i think the team that led this worked day uh, worked night and day to get it delivered and it had like instant traction on day one right because business was really clamoring for finding a way to accept these payments because their business was struggling and as soon as we launched it like this huge adoption second thing we did was launching a similar platform for e-commerce business because a lot of e-commerce businesses at that point of time at least 60% of order used to be cod so we launched a product called ecod which allowed these e-commerce companies to accept digital payments at the time of delivery for their pending stuck cod orders again this goes we got really good traction because we followed the same philosophy we had spoken to these customers we realized that they had a problem and as soon as they launched that businesses were able to take that up in a jiffy similarly a lot of these solutions were solved but i think inside the company at least for next 2 to 3 weeks if not more at probably for a month there's an entire war type atmosphere like we were in a war situation where there were opportunities coming left right and center a lot of businesses were asking can you do this for me can you do that for me and what my role there was just to take calls okay what makes sense and what doesn't make sense because you can't build everything that all of your customers ask for but you have to find out what are the things that you really want to bet on and that was my role beyond that adding it was a team that executed most of the things from day one we are focused on creating a culture of ownership so as soon as something like that came up people just came into the office themselves figure out what they could do to contribute in this time and they they picked it up and started executing right we didn't have a culture where people had to ask permission hey can i do this or can i do that as soon as people realized that this is a war situation they just found things that they could do to be helpful in this time and this was everyone right i mean it's not just the product guys it's not just the engineers it's everyone from finance folks to sales folks to marketing guys to everyone was just support guys operations guys everyone was just trying to find ways where they could add value in this time but this was one of the most exciting times for us so we marketed a lot of these products well and our sign up numbers went through the roof we ran one of our first uh, newspaper advertisement campaign at that point of time which further pushed sign up numbers and it seemed to be ensured that nobody got a terrible experience because we were scaling so rapidly so i think it is a combination of the culture that we had built it was a combination of the ownership that people had but more important than that it's, it's the team that we had built at that point of time that took up that responsibility it's wonderful to hear you know how you helped the smallest folks be it like people running petrol pumps or travel agency and i think that those were the case studies that you had shared as well would love to understand that a little more separately as well and then you know one thing we really want to understand is your model is very powerful because you are winning someone's trust if you are managing their money in certain ways right because the merchants customers banks all flow through you when did you realize uh, or was it like a part of your plan that hey you know we use this as a way to win customer trust and then we start selling more solutions over and above that because the initial arpu might be a little low but as you add layer more products and more solutions you can start upselling and cross selling was that part of you know your initial game plan or did it evolve over time how did you look at that it is a mix of both i think i remember see in our yc application there is a question at the end there is a last question in yc application which says that if you are not going to pursue this idea what else would you do and uh, i looked at the yc application i think a couple of months back and i realized that at that point of time also we had felt that if we were not to build a payment gateway we will probably try to build a platform for managing businesses financial transactions or basically try to build a bank we didn't use the term neo bank but it basically built a way for 
businesses to bank better. Of course, we, at that point of time, I don't think we realized that both of these ideas would converge together. But even at that point of time, as you were, because you were speaking to SMEs on a, on a daily basis to figure out what problems they had, at that point of time, also we realized that payments is one problem, but banking is a second problem. And, and those are the two problems that we want to solve for. Fortunately for us, we were able to find a way to connect these together, as you rightly said. But I think that journey happened over time. So I think the way it happened was that, as I said earlier, like we always constantly, as we started the payment gateway, we constantly kept that rigor alive of speaking to our customers to understand what else can we do for them, what are all the other problems that they face. And as we kept doing that, we realized that, okay, payment acceptance is one thing and we have done that well and businesses love us for it, but they expect us to do more. And they want, while they do payment acceptance really well through SAP, there are a lot of financial process that happen after acceptance of payments, which is like paying their vendors, paying their employees, paying downstream merchants, and so on and so forth that are not handled that well. And businesses expect that if we were able to build something in that direction as well, they already have the trust with us that they'll be willing to move to us, then somebody else will just build it separately. And as we got more of these inputs, we kept building products to cover that. So we started with Payment Gateway, we launched Razorpay 2.0, I think two years into our journey, which solved a lot of the problems with the business phase, like managing of invoices, managing of disbursements, managing subscriptions, and so on and so forth, which got really good traction. And as we moved further into the journey last year, we decided to go the full, fully deeply into it by launching Razorpayx, which is our new banking platform, which basically helps businesses manage their entire checking account or current account through Razorpay. Similarly, we launched Corporate Credit Card and Razorpay Capital, which is a lending platform. And I think all of those were, I don't think any of those were like, I can't put one date when we decided these things. These are like very organic decisions that took place as we kept going broader and broader because our merchants kept expecting us to do more for them because they already trusted us with moving their money. And I think that's how the journey of RazorPayX and RazorPay Capital took shape. It was always somewhere in the back of my mind that we wanted, that, that is a deep problem to solve for. But the connection of starting from a payment gateway to going towards RazorPayX was not something that was built in one single moment. It happened over time. Makes sense. And I think it's a great segment to our topic. And before we dive into that, I actually wanted to ask you about network effects, right? It's talked a lot about in Uber and consumer businesses, but you also have such a strong network effect because of merchants, banks, and consumers. Could you deep dive into that a little bit? How getting merchants gets more banks and, you know, it's a virtuous cycle, customers trust you more. How have you seen that play out? Has it helped your business as you have scaled? Yeah, definitely. I think B2B businesses have even stronger network effects than people realize. It's more visible in B2C because people share over social media and things like that. But when you talk about B2B businesses, people anyways always look up to what others do. Right? Like B2B businesses, one of the basic decision-making factor for a B2B customer is trusting that you will be able to deliver. So let me explain that. Like in a consumer space, if you build something cool, people might be willing to try it out just because it's cool. And as long as they don't have a too much risk or too much money to be spent there, they'll be willing to try out just because it looks cool. In B2B business, the decision-making is more complicated because the decision-maker is generally working for their employer. And if they take a decision just because it's cool or because it looked good to them, and tomorrow they are unable to justify the decision, then they can suffer heavily for it, including losing their jobs. And that's why they want to get those proof points or their trust points, which help them justify the decision more than a consumer business. So in B2B business, it's really important that you are able to give the decision maker those proof points by saying that, okay, these are the other guys that use us. These are the other customers that use us. And those proof points add a lot of value because that helps this person justify internally that, okay, I chose Razorpay because of these, these factors, because they do this well, because they do this well. 
and these are the four customers who i have spoken to who are saying that they do this well so i think the kind of the advantage network effects in b2b business is even more higher because a b2b customer is always looking for those proof points so that he can justify that yes this is the right decision for us and for our organization um i think when we started in our journey of course we focused on very early stage startups which was which are mostly founder led which act more like consumers where they were just willing to use us because we served them better than anyone else but as we moved further in the journey as we started started targeting bigger and bigger businesses over time it was really important for us to get those proof points the way we did that was having a two pronged approach we had a enterprise sales team which focused on large enterprises and the reason for us to get large enterprises on board probably one year after our journey was because we knew that getting one or two of those marquee names will further accelerate our journey on the SME side because SME businesses typically look up that okay who which are the payment gateway that a company like Swiggy uses or Zomato uses or Goa uses or Airtel uses because that is a company that they are more willing to trust than some than somebody who looks good and who does everything well but has no major proof points so we segregated our team sales efforts into enterprise teams which focused on getting some of these large enterprises we didn't do it on day one we did it about 1 to 2 years into our journey so that we had in a bandwidth to absorb that distraction and as we started doing that and we started getting couple of these large clients on board our sme sales funnel also started shooting up a lot more because now people could trust us much more easily that okay if you guys handle payments or zomato or swiggy then probably i can trust you with handling my payments as well i need a further validation of the proof point come like in couple of months back so let me explain like what when we started people used to say payments is a commoditized business especially b2b payments is a commoditized business nobody cares about how good you are whoever has the cheapest price win but vehemently disagreed with that statement because while it was true for that time in india we believed that if somebody was able to differentiate themselves significantly on product and tech you could build a brand in b2b payment space and we saw that last couple of weeks back when we looked at google trends report and we saw that the search trend for razorpay overtook the industry term payment gateway for the first time in the history of our company and for the first time in the history of probably that term because no other brand in the payment gateway space in india had managed to do that so we were able to do that and establish a brand in our space the only thing that proved is that if you are able to use port and tech as a differentiator that it can distinguish your product wide enough that people recognize you as razorpay and not just any other payment gateway provider i think that just went on to prove that how brands can be created in b2b space as long as you are able to differentiate enough and that's a great segue into our topic for this episode which is building new products and essentially over time you have kind of led and created a new category so i would like to go back to when you launched razorpay i mean it, it took you a while to find the right bank that was willing to partner with you how did you go about launching your first version building your mvp yeah so i think i covered some part of that journey earlier but i think the way we built it is that and i think it's an interesting story because typically if you look at payment gateways like almost every payment gateways apis in indian industry look very similar but if you look at razorpay's integration apis they look significantly different than most payment players the reason for that is that the way most payment companies are built is that they look they take the integration with bank and they build their layering on top of it but mostly their apis look very similar to what banks provide them in our case fortunately unfortunately we had got access to banking apis much later in our journey so what we did was we started building the product assuming how a business would want to use it versus how a bank would expose it to us so we built it from customer side first okay if i am a merchant and i want to integrate a payment gateway how should that api look like how should that integration look like how should the documentation look like and with that in mind we started building the product assuming that and assume that the bank said integration is a black box and as that got built and over time as i got approval from the banker we got the bank said integration exposed 
and we built a scaffolding on our side to connect the bank side integration to what we believe the customer needed. And that's why Razorpay's integration APIs are significantly different than what most payment companies in India provide. For the simple reason that we built with the customer first approach that, okay, if a merchant would want to use it, how should it look like versus building it inside out that, okay, if a bank provides us this, let us build it in that way. I think that is an important way that product decisions should be taken in any product. It's not a rocket science, but a lot of times this get missed out that your product in the end is built for your customers. So it should be built in the way that your customers can use it the best versus what is the easiest for you to execute. And I think that has been the guiding philosophy for us for any product that we have built, whether it's payments arm, whether it's a banking arm, whether it's a lending arm, it's anything else. I think our guiding philosophy will always be that, okay, if a customer uses our product in this way, what should be the best way that this product is exposed or packaged? And whatever heavy lifting we have to do on our side, that's our problem. That's a great insight, you know, kind of, especially when you think of APIs, it's not your first instinct to be so customer focused, but that's clearly what differentiated you guys from the competitors. But what about things that you wished you'd done differently? Were there any lessons learned from your, your first version or versions of Razorpay? I mean, on the product side, of course, there were a lot of lessons learned. I mean, we were not the, uh, I mean, nobody has the inherited product. I think the first version we launched was an MVP at best. Uh, we figured out a lot of things that we were missing. We figured out a lot of things that we had to add. Um, it's hard to put a finger on one thing because there's so many changes. Like the digital product today looks significantly different than what it started with. The essence remains the same, but the, the product limit looks significantly different. Um, I, I think in it, terms of it's process. hard to put... Sorry, go ahead. Of, no, I was saying instead of features, maybe perhaps in terms of process, if you were to do it again, would you approach it differently? No, I think now when we build a product, we have a much better process because we have a lot more data. Uh, earlier, it was there was a lot of gut and intuition that went into deciding the product. Uh, and we had much less data. I mean, data is a privilege that only large organizations have. So um, at that point of time, we had to take a lot of gut-based uh, decisions. A lot of the decisions proved to be wrong uh, in hindsight, and we had to correct for them as the business, as a product scaled up. Uh, Versus if I were to build, like if Razorpay is to build any other product today, whether it's PMT or anything else, we have a lot more data and we have a lot more analysis that we can spend our time and energy on before deciding to build it that way. And that allows us to take more correct decisions. I think the inference that I will draw from that is that when you're launching a product for the first time, I think relying on intuition is actually a good idea. Even if some of those intuitions might prove wrong, because being right or being perfect is less important in the early days than it is to go live and solve the problem. As long as your MVP is solving the problem and it is solving a problem that, that is unsolved for a while, it doesn't matter if some of your decisions are not the best ones if you had access to data. A lot of businesses have seen and a lot of startups have seen spend a lot of time in doing deep analysis, deep insights, trying to get the perfect product out there on day one. I think that, that's a flawed philosophy. I think a lot of people have spoken this before. You should be ashamed of your MVP. If you're not, you have probably launched it too late. And I think we have seen that that holds true. I can today, I can look back and say there were at least like 100 flaws in Razorpay's first product, but we wouldn't be here if we hadn't launched that then. And we would spend a lot of that time in finding all those flaws that we discovered over a period of time. We, have, we had waited for all those flaws to solve before we launched it out. Probably we will not be sitting in the place we are. So I think just launching early and solving a problem is more important than ensuring that all your decisions are the best ones for that point of time. I think that's a great insight, kind of going with gut, with your gut, even though you want data and you don't always have it, that's often the only choice that you have as a founder. But now kind of transitioning to Razorpay X, when of course things are very different, you have a lot more data, you have a much bigger customer base, you must be doing things very differently. So I wanted to understand 
maybe at a high level, if you can explain your process, you said it was a lot of different factors that resulted in you deciding to create this product. Can you tell us how you went about launching Razorpay X? So yeah, with Razorpay X, as you rightly said, we are in a much better position in the sense that we already have customer base that trusts us. We have a large enough team who can spend time and energy into it. And that's why the process was a lot better than what we had when we launched Razorpay for the first time. But at the same time, we tried to borrow some of the similar ideals, right? So the things that we did differently was A, we spoke to more customers than we spoke when we launched Razorpay because we had access to them. So we could speak to like the largest of guys in the payment industry to the smaller show guys and get a very varied set of information and feedback on what the market really needs. The second thing that we did differently was, of course, because we had product folks, engineering folks, we could create a much better design product with much more product focus than we could do at that point of time. I think the initial version of Razorpay payments was very engineering-led. We didn't have a product manager at all. Versus in Razorpay X, we could on day one have product insight coming into it. Somebody would gather all the information, channelize into a product framework that works and speak to customers to validate that the decisions we are taking make sense. I think we did a lot of those things with differently. But at the same time, one thing I would say is that like we still decided that even with all of that, there's a lot more gut and intuition that went into. And whenever you're creating a new product, it's extremely hard to validate everything with data. We, while with all of that was there, for a lot of those decisions, we spoke to customers and showed that, yes, there is a problem to be solved. This is probably the best way to solve it, but can we validate that this will be a $100 million business or a $200 million business in the next four to five years? That was hard to do, especially when you're doing something. It was actually easier to do in Payment Gateway because Payment Gateway was an established industry. So we could look at, okay, what are other companies doing? How big a market that is? And we could project the market size much more easily. In Neo Banking, which is Razorpex, it is harder to do because we were doing something which has been done for the first time in India, probably in the world, because the way we are doing it is very deeply integrated. And if we were to create a business plan out of it that, okay, we'll build it as a 1 million company in the next four years and then decide to do it, it will be too late because somebody else will have to prove the market for us before we came to that size. So designing the product, the product decisioning, we got a lot more data than we got in Razorpay Payment Gateway. But at the same time, on deciding the business plan and the business operational goals, we decided we had to go with a lot more gut than we had to go when we launched Payment Gateway. So I think it's a mix of both things. Um, and I think with, and if you're building something where the industry doesn't exist at all, then you can't have a foolproof business plan on day one. It's almost impossible. And I know a lot of people ask for it. Investors ask for it and employees ask for it. A lot of senior leaders will ask for it. You can create something, but it's extremely hard to get it right because there's no data available. If I were to map out and even today, try to say what is the market opportunity for neobanking for businesses in next five years, it is anyone's guess. Give some estimate based on how banking finance, traditional banking industry is, but how big neo-banking would be is still a bat that raises a base ticket. And, you know, that kind of brings up an interesting question. I've been wondering about the neo-banking industry in India. While it's a new industry and there's not a lot of data, there are a lot of people who are kind of already getting into that space and there's a lot of money going to that space. And a lot of players are yet to find you know, a business model and, and a path to monetization. So I was just curious as to your opinion about, you know, do you think there's a lot of hype and kind of what is your view of the whole? I'm not disagreeing with the fact that there's a lot of hype in your banking. And I think hype is good. Whenever there's hype in a space, like for example, if you look at the food tech boom or e-commerce boom, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of companies, but among that hype and among that large number of companies that came up, you got one or two or three, which were actually doing something differentiated and which end up changing the way food delivery in India is done today. 
or the way e-commerce in India runs today or the way cab hailing in India runs today, right? So hype isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think neobanking is a very significant trend, not just in India, but across the world. And a lot of people are trying to get into it. But let me justify it in one single way, right? Like look at the number of universal banks that exist in India today. There are at least 100, if not more. If you look at the stock market of India today, I think the top traded blue chip stocks are still banking stocks and not just in India, across the world. So the market size is definitely not a problem for neobanking, right? If a neobanking platform could end up proving successful and ends up displacing even one traditional bank, there's a lot of value that can be created in that space. So from that perspective, while there is definitely hype and there is definitely a lot of people coming in because it looks, because it looks exciting, but let me tell you, it is actually pretty exciting. If you were to look at the size of the banking system, then I think there's a lot of value to be created. The other proof point that I have is that when we have launched RazorPay, or we have one of the very few live and active new banking platforms in India, we have seen that business actually find a lot of value. Uh, the banking industry in India is pretty big and wide, but it serves the interest of generally the most affluent customers, whether it's businesses or consumers. I think the bottom of pyramid on businesses in particular, and that's the market I can speak very well about the SME market on the banking side gets very little to no attention. Like a simple example would be most business banking accounts today don't even have mobile banking app. Like mobile banking, which is considered ubiquitous in personal banking world, doesn't exist for most SMEs. So they still have to sign paperwork, they still have to sign documents, or they have to deal with old school desktop applications to do most transactions. And there's something which is very basic in today's world that you should at least have a mobile app for running banking for your business. So I think the opportunity to create something differentiated is extremely deep because the SME market in India, when it comes to banking, is so deeply underserved. And I was talking just about a mobile banking app. If you go further broader and talk about lending, then SME lending market for banks doesn't exist. Most SMEs have to fend off with NBFCs or non-traditional lenders to get access to the credit that they need to sustain their businesses because banks don't even look at them. Similarly, if you go broader and look at Forex, look at insurance, look at so many different things that SME needs, most of these things are not very well served. Most SME financial operations still run on Excel files, still run through papers and checks. And I think that ecosystem needs to change significantly in the next five to 10 years. So I think there is definitely a problem that exists. There's definitely a large market that exists which neobank will solve for it is anyone's guess and a lot of people are trying to get into it but if you look at those two things it's no surprise that neobanking has so much hype today because it's a huge market with huge number of problems to be solved for absolutely and like with any big market with so much opportunity a lot of players are, are bound to come in and you know it seems like neobanks might actually have a tough climb ahead with account aggregators banking as a service coming in to the industry existing banks like SBI and, and Kotak coming up with uh, digital offerings. Yeah. So curious as to your thoughts about where, you know, Razorpay X specifically will add value. How do you fit into this larger neo-banking system? It's definitely needed, but how, how does it all work together? Yeah. So as I said, like the problem exists, the market exists. Now the third thing comes is what is the solution, right? And there are different approaches that traditional banks trying to do neo-banking. And I think some of them have done a really good job in the consumer space. They are niche uh, segments being targeted different neobanks for example we are targeting the sme space in particular and uh, we're starting with tech first sme and moving towards non-tech there are some neobanks targeting the large enterprise space there are some neobanks targeting the blue color employee space i think the banking industry in india is far wide uh, you know that that there'll be different solutions that work for different set of customers uh, so i don't think this will be a winner take all market there'll be different solutions that work for different segment 
of the market. When you're building neobank from a product first approach, what that essentially means that you're building with customer at the center. And when you're doing that, then you need to clearly define who your customer is. So your single universal bank approach that traditionally existed in banking world that you have one bank which does everything. So if you talk about like SBI or ICICI or HDFC world world, they are just one single bank that serves the retail customers, they serve the SMEs, they serve the large enterprises of everyone because they don't care who their customer is, they just provide their services. Versus when somebody is building Neobank on a product first approach, they need to streamline who their customer is, which type of customer they're building for, and only then you can build a product first approach towards banking. So with that in mind, I think Neobanking would not have similar outcomes. There'll be different Neobanks targeting different segment of the customer. And as the Indian economy grows far, further and wider in the next couple of years, each of these niches will be big enough to be served by separate new banks, or maybe some of those segments will be captured by traditional banks. But the idea is that each of these customer segments will need their own approach to banking. We are primarily focused on the SME B2B banking space because we believe that is an area where we have expertise. We understand businesses really well. We dealt with payments. So we have some inherent trust with these businesses because we trust their money. And we know these businesses well enough that we know what kind of problems that they face and how could we solve it better. So I think firstly for us, we are very excited about this opportunity because we've already launched the Razorpex neobanking platform and we've seen is getting really strong traction, even though it is like a six month old product, uh, just goes to show that how deep the problem in the neobanking space is. Makes a lot of sense. And I think you earlier touched upon demonetization being number one and COVID being number two in terms of you know rallying the team. What tailwinds have been there specifically for RazorPayX and in general for RazorPay as a company due to the pandemic, digital adoption and acceleration? How, how has that affected everything? Yeah, so I think, I think COVID-19 is definitely a very significant change for the entire world economy. And every business is still trying to understand the impact for their business uh, given the new world order. I think for us, we couldn't onboard merchants for a while because KYC couldn't be done with everything in lockdown, directors being at home, um, and so on and so forth. But let me speak more about the long-term changes, right? One of the biggest things that is happening is that unlike demonetization, this is a longer-term impact. Demonetization was a one-month at max, one-and-a-half-month impact, and then cash flow back in the economy. But this COVID where physical distancing and social distancing is in place for at least six months and counting. And given that, the changes that are being brought about by COVID-19 can be far more longer in impact and far more stickier from a longer perspective. So a couple of things that we have seen is that like, right, the distribution journey that we started with during demonetization is getting really accelerated during COVID because right now cash or physical transactions or physical touch points. So every business is trying to reduce the number of physical touch points they have to do internally as well as external. And that is creating strong tailwinds for businesses such as ours, which focus on digitization of workflows, digitization of finance flows, reduce the physical touch points required, reduce the amount of cash, check, and other kind of physical paperwork that a business typically involves itself with. We are seeing really good traction coming out of that. To give you an example, like FMCG supply chains, right? They, like the distributed retailer supply chains have run on physical cash and check-based collections for ages. And whenever we've tried to change that to digital medium, it has always been a failing argument because the thing just works. In the last couple of months, we have seen a lot of these large FMCG companies are trying to distress their supply chains because their shopkeepers and retailers are scared of touching cash right now. I think that kind of change couldn't have happened without COVID or would have happened, but it probably have taken the next three to five years for it to take into effect. So I think those kind of major changes are happening. Similarly, when it comes to neobanking, one of the biggest disadvantages that people say neobanks have compared to traditional banks is that neobanks don't have a branch. 
and a lot of traditional businesses are still used to the traditional old school approach that they need a branch next to their house or next to their business if they want to bank with someone now given the current covid situation bank branches are as good as useless because most business owners don't want to visit branches anyway so whether it's a traditional bank or a neo bank the only form factor that a bank delivers service to you is a mobile app or a desktop website and on that front neo banks such as azpex have significantly better experience compared to a, to a bank to compared to a traditional bank uh, so consequently like i think the kind of experience that we can give to a business the kind of differentiation that we can produce for a business is significantly more in a post covid world compared to a pre covid world um, because now everyone is on the same platform building a mobile app or building a dashboard uh, online online dashboard um, so i think overall i think neo banking uh, oh, sorry overall i think uh, covid 19 accelerating the trends towards digitalization towards digital banking and digital payments significantly faster than we would have imagine it would have taken like some of these changes probably have taken next 3 to 5 years which are happening in a period of 6 ish months uh, right now and i think uh, while of course it's a global epidemic and there there are a lot of negative impacts on the economy because of this uh, at least on the digitalization front it has a very positive impact that's that's amazing i think uh, you know very very insightful point on branches being that big differentiator between banks and neo banks which i think have all but vanished is super super helpful uh harshil we wanted to conclude with a question that we ask all our guests we call it unfiltered feedback that's why our show is named founders unfiltered what's that one piece of unfiltered feedback that you've got over your career which really changed the way you think and you know we really like more you know brutal honest direct kind of feedback versus you know feedback that is generally positive anything you'd like to share maybe the first uh, most important one received when we were starting up as a young gateway i think in the first year we we were trying to sell to almost everyone that we could right so at one side we were as i said we were selling to startups but the other side because we got investment we were talking to some of the largest guys like flipkart ola cabs and so on and so forth and we were trying to sell everyone and in one of our meetings with one of our investors we shared that hey we are expecting these thousand merchants to go live on the same side we are expecting ola and flipkart to convert and we are expecting these guys to convert and the investor asked us one similar question that who are you trying to target or what is the customer segment you are trying to target I means we are trying to target everyone because we are building a payment gateway which everyone needs so why should we restrict ourselves and i think one of the best feedback that i got at that moment of time is that when you are at least a startup with a like a 10 member team that we had you can't target everyone and a lot of startups get greedy and we were greedy as well that we were trying to target the large guys parallelly in the early days when we were just 10 people strong and looking back i think you're fortunate that we didn't close any of these guys and we were to walk off from them because if we had closed let's say company of the size of flipkart when we were a 10 member team then the journey of reserve would be very different and this might look counterintuitive but what young startup founders like us don't realize is that if we had bought a flipkart at that point of time then our destiny would be tied up to because we would have to build everything that flipkart would ask us for uh, volumes would jump suddenly so we couldn't afford to lose flipkart anymore and we would end up becoming a shop for building payments for flipkart if you hadn't got this advice and we hadn't walked off from that because in a leash startup you can't handle that big of a client and if you are get that big of a client then you're basically riding a tiger and you can't afford to get off it because now your investors know this much volume you will raise fundraising based on that much volume and if you lose that client then the business is as good as dead so i think the investor put it in a very right philosophy they called they said there are three type of customers there are rabbits which which are small but move fast there are deers which are mid sized at a decent pace and then there are elephants so these are three type of customers and you have to know who are you building for are you building for rabbits are you building for deers or are you building for elephants 
because all three of them require different approaches and an early stage startup can't afford to have this being open for all and serving all of them because elephants will move slow once you get them of course you get a large customer but they'll move slow and they are very difficult to manage versus rabbits they'll move fast you get a lot of them very quickly and you can move rapidly but they'll not give or too much revenue early days and then you have doers here somewhere in between so i think the one piece of advice i want most early stage startups to know is that they need to know which customer segment they are going after and what are the risks and opportunities with that segment just being greedy and going after the large guys because they'll give you a lot of volume and lot of revenue might not be the right decision for your business amazing i mean this is super insightful i think you know if i had to summarize it you build for a niche first then you land and expand flipkart then may not have been the right client but you know kind of worked your way up and now you have so many enterprise clients like airtel swiggy it's an amazing journey Uh, thank you so much arshil for taking your time to speak to us we loved the conversation yep thanks well this was really interesting and thanks mazin and now a quick summary of what we discussed with arshil the co-founder and ceo of razorpay what's amazing to me about the razorpay story is the fact that arshil to really put himself out there network and connect with a lot of bankers to build the first version of razorpay instead of complaining harshil was able to turn that into what made his product so much better than what existed out there he used the time to talk to as many customers as he could he understood why the current payment solutions that existed did not work for them and he built a product with his customers in mind once he got approval he fit the bank solution to make it work for his customers and that customer centric approach is what has defined razorpay and helped them succeed but when you contrast this approach in the early days to the new product that he's building the first time he built razorpay a lot of it was based on his gut feeling he didn't have as much data he didn't have a same understanding of the market well whereas this time around when launching razorpay x it was a totally different story it was a lot less gut feel and a lot more data driven but also he already had the trust of his customers which is so important in the banking space he had proven to his customers that he can handle their money and banking was just an, a natural next step for a company that had earned their customers trust and were now offering more services and so for those of you out there who are building products and for those out there who are building products you should definitely follow harshil's approach focus on your users talk to them often get feedback launch early collect data build on that data sometimes you have to go with your gut but that's fine too and as your company grows make sure that you transition from making gut based decisions to data based decisions thank you so much for tuning in to founders unfiltered i've got a favor to ask you can you take a minute to review us on itunes apple podcasts or wherever you are listening Thank you.